Good evening. How's everybody tonight? Good. You getting dry? Yes. All right. We're glad you're here. Well, if you're on live stream or podcast, we're glad that you've connected with us and we're able to gather around the word today because the word makes a difference. The word changes us. Amen. Amen. Father, we bless you. Come on, let's bless the Lord. We bless you. We honor you, Lord. We give you the praise and the glory. Father, there's none like you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that you sent him for us. You sent your word and healed us and delivered us from our destructions. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus came, paid the price for our sin, that he shed his blood, he gave his life. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for salvation that goes all the way into eternity. Father, I thank you that your Holy Spirit dwells within us. Thank you, Father, that your life is within us. Your nature is within us. All things, Father, that you've given to us in Christ Jesus. Thank you for loving us, for caring about us, for your great compassion and your mercy towards us. Oh, Father, thank you for all that you are and all that you do. We honor you. We glorify you. We lift you up and give you all the praise, the honor, the adoration that you alone are worthy to receive. Glorious King, mighty God, everlasting Father. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, that you allow us to come into your presence, to stand before you and worship you and give you the adoration that you're worthy to receive. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Father, I thank you now that as we approach your word, that we can sit at your feet and be taught by your spirit, that he'll impart revelation into our spirit, that he takes the word and makes it applicable into our life, that we can see out from the word how it works and applies into our very life, into the very things we're dealing with, and how the word of God can change us, that he can change our situations and makes things better. Lord, I just thank you that we continually grow and increase in your divine nature, developing in all that you are and all that you've made us to be, conforming more and more to the image of Jesus, walking in a manner worthy of you and pleasing you in all respects. We bless you, we honor you, and praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Glory to God, glory to God. Well, how many of you know we are drawing close to the end days? Amen. We certainly are. And, um, you know, there's four things that we can expect from the Lord as we draw closer and closer to the end days. And it's four things that he'll do in our life, four things that he'll um, uh, work in our life, and four things that he wants to bring about in our life before the end of days. And the four things are... Correction, direction, protection, and perfection. Amen. But you can't get to perfection without the correction. Amen. Because how many of you would admit to the fact that we're just not perfect? (laughs) And in order to get there, that takes us some change. But, you know, the good part about it is the more that we change, the more we conform to the image of Jesus, and therefore the more powerful we become on the earth. Because Jesus was the most powerful person that walked on the face of the earth. So the more that we conform to his image and develop in the divine nature of our Father, the more powerful we can become on this earth. The more power faith has in our life. 
because it comes out from that place, that nature, and that place of power. Amen? Hallelujah. So let's go over to the book of Revelation, since we're talking about end days, and let's go to chapter 2. And I want to look at one of the churches over there. It's the church of Pergamum. And in, uh, let's just read about the church of Pergamum before we take it apart, which we may not get to the whole thing today. But in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Hallelujah. So there's a lot of stuff in there that you have no idea what he's talking about. And it's not types and shadows because everybody in Pergamum knew exactly what he was talking about. And you know, what he talked about in the, to the church of Pergamum, he talks to the church today. Uh, there is no difference. You know, there were seven churches in the book of Revelation, which is the number of perfection. And those seven churches cover all churches for all time. Every church fits into one of those categories, or a church may have several of those categories in them. But there is no church outside, no church outside of those categories. Amen. Now, Pergamum was quite a um, unique city. It had become the capital of the providence of Asia, and it was proud of its link with Rome. The problem was in Pergamum that leniency towards those in the church who were compromising their faith with the idol worship and the sexual immorality of pagan worship. And there was a lot of leniency towards that. That was a problem. That, you know, Jesus, he just don't put up with the, oh, lovey, lovey, lovey. You got to love him. You got to love him. He don't put up with that nonsense. Because you know why? Because he's not unrenewed flesh. See, that's unrenewed flesh. That whole unrenewed flesh, it's, it's absolutely disgusting in the nostrils of God. Now, we don't hate or disregard people, but we do not buddy up to their sin. And you cannot allow people, you can allow sinners to come into the church that are willing to change and wanting to change. Or maybe they don't know they need to change until they hear something that go like, oh, I need to change that. Is that right? But you don't allow people to come in that want to stay in their sin and not change. As somebody said one time, patience with the weak is a strength, 
but patience with the false is a weakness. When you are patient and lovey-dovey with the false, you are weak and you don't stand up for the truth. Amen. So in verse 12, he said to the angel, now we know the word angel, talking about the messenger of the church or the pastor of the church. Every time he's talking to a church, he's talking to the pastor of the church. And he says, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, the sharp two-edged sword. Now, why did Jesus, now Jesus doesn't come to any of the other churches with the sharp two-edged sword. Why does he come to Pergamum as the one with the sharp two-edged sword? Because in Pergamum, the governor had the right of the sword. So if you were in the Colosseum and the governor puts the sword up, it means you live. But if the governor puts the sword down, it means you dead. So he had what they call the right of the sword. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 I have the two-edged sword. And my sword is greater than his. So what does the right of the sword of the governor do? It puts fear in people. But Jesus said, I want up them. I don't just have a sword. I have a two-edged sword, and it's in my mouth. It's the word of God. So what does this do? It describes the potency of the word of God. It describes the power of the word of God. That Jesus don't need some physical sword. All he needs is his mouth. All he needs is to open his mouth and slay, slay the nations. You know, what does the Bible say about one angel put down 185,000, was it? Something like that. One angel, 185,000. Boom, done. And angels gain strength from what? The word of God, the power of the word. So he's saying in his mouth is the word, the potency and the power of this two-edged sword in his mouth. And it never has a dull edge on it. He is the judge and he's the executioner. Amen. So that's a promise that God, Jesus is the one. I promise you I am the one with the sharp two-edged sword. So that could be a promise of protection or it could be a promise of warning depending on what side you're on. It will either protect you or it will warn you. So Jesus starts off by saying, I'm the one that has the sharp two-edged sword, and he's going to start the correction. The church of Pergamum, I'm going to talk to you about a lot of things tonight. The church of Pergamum is symbolic of many churches that have compromised with the world. That's what five of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, their problem was is that they lived according to the spirit of the city that they were living in. They took on the spirit of the world. So Pergamum is symbolic of compromising with the world. That that spirit of compromise was especially evident until Emperor Constantine came into office. And he issued the Edict, Edict of Milan and granted religious freedom to Christians. And he ended two and a half centuries of savage persecution against the church. And we say glory to God. Constantine, Constantine adopted Christianity and made it the favored religion of the empire. 
and Christianity merged with the Roman state. Heathen priests became Christian priests. Heathen temples became Christian churches. Heathen feasts became Christian festivals. Now, I didn't say heathen priests got saved and became Christian priests. I didn't say that. I said the heathen priests are now in the Christian churches. The heathen temples are now being used as a church. The heathen feasts are now being celebrated with the Christians. And Christianity was no longer a personal matter, but now it was a national identity. And the church married the political system. The church should have come into a place of freedom. What, what, what Paul wrote to Timothy, to pray for the leaders, those that are in charge, so that we would lead a quiet and tranquil life. In other words, that we could go out and do the things God wants us to do. We could go out and preach the gospel without having interference with the government, without having any, any opposition from, from political avenues. But we can go out and do things freely, quietly, and in a tranquil way of peace. But no, the church that was the persecuted church, when Constantine came in and said Christianity is now the, the, the religion of the empire, then they became the persecuting church. And they said, what you did to us, we're now going to do to you. And they married the political system. And you could no longer separate the church from politics. So worldliness became very synonymous with the church. And today, of course, in some ways, this type of worldliness is still rampant in the church. Churches, even entire denominations, have departed from the true faith and embraced the world philosophically and morally. And you could see it in a lot of denominations, and I don't know if you've heard of any lately, but you can see it to where they've taken on the attitude of the world and what the world is promoting, and they take that and actually put it into their leadership. Outright sin in the leadership of churches because they've embraced the world philosophically and morally. And like Pergamum, they fall under the judgment of the Lord of the true church who has a two-edged sword in his mouth. Verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So he says, I know. I know where you dwell, and it means I know it. I know it firsthand because I walk among the church and I see for myself everything that's going on in your church and around your church. I know. I didn't get a report from an angel. I didn't have somebody come and tell me. I know firsthand because I've been there myself, just like I walk among all the churches because I am the head and the Lord of the church. He knows right where they're at. I know, you could say it this way, I know where you live. I know what you have to deal with. I know what you're going through. And guess what, folks? Even in Pergamum, the word works there. Where? Where Satan's throne is. That's where. 
a city with three temples built to the Roman emperors because the Roman emperors were worshipped as gods because they believed the spirit of Roma was in the emperor. Because there were so many religions, pagan religions within the Roman Empire, Rome decided they needed one for themselves. So they declared the spirit of Roma was inside the emperor. Whoever the emperor was, the spirit of Roma was in them. Well, you keep saying that enough and you're going to have some spirit come in you. Thus, the craziness of Nero and Domitian and all those whacked out emperors. Demon-possessed. There were beautiful temples to the great gods of Zeus, Dionysus, Demeter, Athena, who is also known as Diana, and Asclepios. This is Satan's throne. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. The church was totally surrounded by pagan culture. It was exposed continuously to its allurements and strengthened by familiar sin. So because, uh, listen, everybody that was in that church in Pergamon was delivered out of the pagan world. So they know exactly what's going on out there. They were delivered out of it, but they're living right in the middle of it. So therefore, it continually strengthens that familiar sin that's in them. This is the importance of getting away from familiar sins. Let me say that again. This is the importance of getting away from familiar sins. And before you say yes, you've got to say, yes, I know I have one. We all have them. And you need to make a decision, I'm going to get away from it. Not today, not tomorrow. And don't be like the procrastinator said, I'm going to get right on that tomorrow. No, you need to do it. As soon as you know, I need to deal with this. And not put it off. Because you will be allured further and further away. They also face severe animosity from the persecuting emperor worshipers. But he said to them, you hold fast my name. Which means you take a hold of, you have grasped with strength and hold fast and courageously grasped a hold of my name. And you will not let go of it despite the persecution that comes against you, despite the pressures that come against you to compromise or to renounce the head of the church. The pressures to worship the emperor, even in the face of death. You say, well, you know, bless God, I would never do that. I would never do that. I would never renounce Christ, and I would never allow persecutions to pull me in that direction. Listen, if you can't stand against the pressures of your family, you can forget about this. If you can't stand against the pressures of that chocolate bar <laughs> in the refrigerator, you can forget about this. Now you say, well, one don't really have anything to do with the other. Where do you think it starts at? Where do you think your strength will start at when you reach this point? You think you're going to all of a sudden get strong at this point? Where do you think it starts at? If you don't start disciplining in the things that's familiar to you, the things that aren't familiar will wash you away in a flood. Amen. Amen. 
These are the days we live in, folks. They were facing political persecution. You think you're facing political persecution? You ain't seen nothing. And you're not going to really see it because we'll be gone by the time the real persecution comes. And thank God for that. And that's why Jesus said, pray, pray that you are able to escape that which is coming upon the earth. Pray that you're not there. It's coming upon the whole earth. Pray that you're able to be out of that. Amen. This was only a warm-up for what's actually going to be coming. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. You didn't deny, reject. You didn't retract. You didn't renounce, deny, or disown my faith, or which means my faith, which means the faith that believes in me for salvation. You didn't deny it. Jesus knew of their faithfulness to him. And they knew of their life. He knew of their life of faith. See, no amount of satanic oppression can destroy genuine saving faith as those believers possessed. Jesus said it this way. On the rock of revelation, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. But if you play in a game, you're going down. won't stand I don't believe any of you are because you're here on rainy Wednesday night I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas my witness my faithful one Antipas the word anti means against and the word pos means all to be against all all right, his name, Antipas. Now, he's not a negative Christian. Oh, here comes Antipas, you know. <laughs> he's not Mr. Negative, okay? But it was a name that was given to him by the world. That wasn't his real name. That was the name that was given to him by the world. The, the city called him Antipas because the world's view of the church is you preach against everything. You preach against progress. You preach against being progressive. You preach against inclusivity. You, you, you preach against being tolerant. You, you preach against all this other stuff. You, you're back in the dark ages. You need to move ahead. You need to progress with everybody. You need to stop living back there. Let me tell you something. You know, you ever heard that expression? Man, that's just as old as sin. Yeah, well, there's something older than sin, and it's called God. The goodness of God is older than sin. And as long as you're living in sin, you're living in the old days. But you're living beyond sin, you're living in the good days. So the world's view of the church always, I'm saying, yeah, the world's view of the church is always that the church is against progress, against everything, clinging to the old ways of doing things. Antipas, it says here, he was killed among you where Satan dwells. So he paid the ultimate price for his refusal to compromise. Because of his faithfulness, the risen Lord commended Antipas. And he used the same title that he used to refer to himself. The faithful one. The faithful witness. That's what Jesus is called. 
And he used that same phrase when he's talked about Andrew. The world said he's against everything, but I'm telling you, he's the faithful witness. He's just like me. Antipas' faithfulness and courage was a rebuke to those in Pergamum who were choosing to compromise with the world. This rebuke is a word of correction to the church. Jesus is not happy with their actions in Pergamum. Now let me tell you a little bit of something about Pergamum and why it's called the place where Satan dwells or where Satan's throne is. So you may have to fasten your seatbelt for this one. There was in Pergamum the goddess Athena, believed to be the guardian and protector of the home, which, what's wrong with that? We would like our city and home protected. Well, why are you against protecting our homes and our cities? Well, because you sacrifice, you worship, you, bring, you dance before her in adoration, and it's idolatry. That's why. Then there was the Temple of Zeus, 210 by 231 feet, built as a giant throne made out of marble and gold. You could see it from all parts of the city and the valley. He was the father of all the Greek gods. There were gifts and sacrifices made to him. They gave themselves to the spirit, into contortions, and becoming absolutely possessed by demonic spirits as they were worshiping Zeus. Then there was the theater. We all love the theater. It sat 10,000 people. And from the theater, you could see directly into the temple of Dionysus, the god of celebration and drama. And in the temple, they would drink and play and have the wildest of orgies. And this is why whenever you see a, uh, 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 a masquerade party, a Roman masquerade party, it's always a toga party. You ever notice that? When you have a masquerade party with a Roman theme, it's a toga party. Because what was the Romans known for? Orgies. Yeah. Oh, but we're just dressing up. Mm -hmm. Stepping right on into it. They believed the doorway to the supernatural was through wine and drugs. They would drink enough and step up into another realm. They would continually progress more and more, the same as drugs do today. Different names, same game, same devil, never changes. Under this influence, they would offer sacrifices, make prophecies, and have magic be done. And the theater was a place of entertainment and worship. And before any entertainment started, first people would watch sacrifices being made to the god Dionysus. It initiated all performance in the theater. Just like over in Thailand, they would worship the drums before they would play the drums and they would become one with the drums and take on the spirit and then start to play the drums that would call the spirits out. Same thing. No difference. Then there was the temple of Demeter where there were sacrifices and celebrations. And it particularly drew women to this uh, temple. The Greek women were very strict in society, but in the temple, it was a place that they could come and experience a bit of freedom. And they could come to the great evening meetings, and the woman would cast off all restraint. There would be immorality, lesbianism, occult activity, eating raw animals, and it believed that it put them in touch with the spirit of Demeter. And it all took place by the theater. Weird? Still goes on today. Still goes on today. And in fact, in many schools, they're trying to make it normal. 
around the country. They're trying to make this normal. Then there was the red courtyard where you would go drink coffee. <laughs> How could this be bad? You would go drink coffee and you honored the Egyptian gods, Isis and Seraphis, and, and worshiped men who became gods, just like some people think politicians, Olympians, entertainers, musicians. And they would sacrifice and worship the Egyptian gods in the red courtyard while they drank coffee. Then there was the temple of Asclepius, which was in the form of a serpent, just like remember when Israel was in the wilderness and the Lord said, put a serpent, bronze serpent up on the standard and raise him up. That was the symbol of the temple of Asclepius, just like the symbol of medicine. And invalids from all parts of Asia flocked, flocked, and while they were sleeping in the court, the God, the unholy spirit, revealed to the priests and the physicians by means of dreams the remedies which were necessary to heal their diseases. So the opportunities of deception was numerous. There was a school of medicine in connection with the temple. And you would begin a journey down the sacred road made of marble. There was therapy centers, magic healing, and I'm sure there was soothing music playing in the background. And maybe somebody rubbed your temples to make you feel good. And you'd come down a passage and the sacred springs would be there. And the priests would do their special hypnotic work to heal them. And they believed that death could not enter into the temple of Asclepios. The only thing was is that when people couldn't be healed, they'd take them out the back door and get rid of them so that nobody would know. And then they could think that everybody that came there got healed. So the sick would come there and believe they couldn't die. They'd leave the center. They'd come to the sacred springs barefoot. You had to be barefoot walking down the marble road, walking past the waters. And you believe that every step you took was a step to purity and healing. And you would sleep, and the priest would interpret dreams and perform medical treatments, both natural and spiritual. And many so-called supernatural healings would take place. And then there was the gymnasium. The gymnasium was the place where you would bathe and practice homosexuality. Then there was the temple of Trajan, where they worshipped the current emperor. And this form of worship was not only giving Christians a hard time, but it was actually killing them. These were the mystery cults of Babylon. Satan's throne? I think so. Believers had to deal with all of this. And you think it's hard to witness where you live. You know they were witnessing. And what's our excuse? I can't believe the way they looked at me. They didn't cut your head off, did they? Because they would have back then. They didn't throw you to the lions, did they? You didn't have somebody up there with a sword going, you know? And we think it's hard. So believers were thought of being against everything. Believers couldn't go to the theater. Not because they were against entertainment, but because every show started with idol worship and sacrifice. They were not against having the city and homes protected, just not being protected by Athena. They were not against Father God, just the fact that Zeus was not him. 
They were not against sipping coffee at the red courtyard. They're just not honoring the Egyptian gods. They were not against healing, just not going to worship Asclepios. They'd love to go to the gym and work out, but they're not going to have a part of homosexual practices. They were not against having an emperor and a leader of the country. They were just not going to worship him. They're not against joyful celebrations. They're just not going to do it before the spirit of Demeter. So it seemed like Christians were against everything. Entertainment, celebration, protection, the beautiful red court, healing the sick, the gym. I mean, come on. But everything that was done in Pergamum was initiated by worship and sacrifices to a pagan god or goddess. And Satan calls us fanatics. He calls us fanatics. I'm going to just take a wild guess that even on the side of Christianity, none of you are in close to what was going on in that place. And when I say close to what was going on, I mean none of us are in the place to where we're living like that for our God on a regular basis continuously. These guys are nuts. They're actually demon-possessed. And Satan calls us fanatic. And Christians are afraid of what? Being called, oh, I don't want to be called a fanatic. They're going to think I'm a fanatic. See, the church swallows the lie that the devil will always call you what he is. Don't you see it every day in politics? They're calling you what they are. It's the same devil, same plan, same game, never changes. It started, it didn't start back then, but when Jesus was on the earth and the, 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 the Pharisees would come to Jesus and say, you are casting out the demon by the ruler of the demons. And what did Jesus say? If that be so, your children are your judges. Why? Because that's what they would do. And remember the seven sons of Sceva? They went around as exorcists and in cohorts with the devil. They would get the devil out, get their money, and leave. And the devil would come back. And then they come. They were casting out the devil by the ruler of the demons. So if what the Pharisees said to be true, then that's what their kids were doing. And therefore, the kids would judge them based on their words. The kids would be their judge. Always, always like this, the devil points the finger, points the finger, points the finger, and if you don't know who you are, you will fall for the lie every single time. He just calls you what he is. Why is everybody so afraid of failure? Because the devil is the biggest failure that's ever existed. He went from the right-hand man of God. He was, uh, he was uh, Lucifer. He was the anointed cherub. And he's fallen to the lowest of the lowest. The biggest failure that ever existed was Satan. And that's the biggest fear he puts in people. Fear of failure, fear of death. Because that's who he is. So it wasn't that these Christians were against all those things. They were against the sacrifices and the idol worship. Therefore, they could not partake of anything. Do you know that if you joined a union back then, union meetings always started with sacrifices and worship to an idol? How could you join the, how could you join the union? Oh, I'm going to go in late. No, <laughs> that's called compromise. That's, and that's how Christians do it. They reason it and they compromise. Now, tradition says that, you know, in front of the throne of Zeus, there was a big brazen bowl. 
And what they would do is they would throw Christians in the bowl and they would heat it up and you couldn't get out. And it would heat it up and you were like fried chicken. They'd fry you in the bowl as sacrifice to Zeus. That's not an easy way to live, considering that you're under that threat continuously. So if the governor did this, you could wind up in the bowl or in some other way of dying. And I'm not at all trying to say that that's easy. That, that, what's the big deal? Just make a decision. And I'm not even saying that Jesus is saying that this is easy. He's not saying this is easy. But, you know, it wasn't easy for him to go to that cross either. And he did that for you. He did that for me. He did what was the hardest thing to do for any human being. Go to that cross and pay the price for our sin. But he did that. Why? Because he loves you. Now, he doesn't require that we die. But if that's what faithfulness will cost us, would we pay the price or would we compromise? Don't be quick to answer, but be quick to think about it. It's a question you've got to ask yourself. Would I pay the price or would I compromise? Remember the words that Paul said, do not be afraid of him who can destroy your body but be afraid of him who can destroy your body and spirit in hell. Hell is not the place of Satan torture. Satan's not there. He's not down there torturing anybody. People get the weirdest ideas. Hell is the place of God's wrath. And Satan knows his day's coming when he's going to wind up there. And he wants to bring as many as he can with him. So we have to ask ourselves that question. Would I pay that price? And you know what answers the question? What you're compromising with today. He said in verse 13, I know where you dwell. I know right where you're at. You're right there at Satan's throne. The believer is living right in the middle of all this pagan idol worship and martyrdom. Jesus did not consider any of that an excuse to compromise. He didn't say, I know where you dwell, so hey, it's okay. I'll give you a break here. No, he didn't consider that or an excuse to compromise. That was the people of Pergamum's lifestyle. They knew how to live by faith, pagan faith, but they knew how to live by faith. They knew how to live controlled by the devil. They knew how to live. Hmm? They knew how to give themselves to demonic spirits. And right in the middle of all of this, some believers held fast to the name and the faith of Jesus. And Jesus called them faithful. See, when it comes to the church, Jesus is coming to the place of correction, but he starts with commendation for the faithful. 
He'll never throw the faithful in the same bowl with those that need correction. He'll always point out those that receive commendation. This is a word of the Lord from back in 2015. Between now and the time of Jesus' return, society will race towards a cataclysmic collision of end-time events, which is the time we're living in right now. The climate is already dramatically shifting, and we are ordained by God to live in this critical hour. You know the, 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 the scripture that says you were born for just such a time as this? That means you're ordained, you're anointed, you're appointed, and you are empowered to live in this day. It doesn't mean, doesn't mean you, you hang your head and give, oh, dear God, what am I going to do? You're ordained to live in this day. Rise up and do something instead of crying about it. You're not a crier. You're an overcomer. You're a conqueror in this world. Rise up and be what God made you to be. He's given you a special empowerment to deal with these days. Amen. I didn't mean to yell, but I hope that woke you up. <laughs> the changes that are taking place before our eyes are going to result in two choices for believers. Number one, the decision to accommodate the world and what's happening in the world, or a refusal to compromise. And riding the fence will no longer be an option. Those who try to accommodate the spirit of the age will lose their capacity to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. But those who make no room for compromise will experience the empowering strength of the spirit beyond anything that any generation has ever known. And the churches of Revelation in chapter 2 and 3 are end time messages. End times meaning end of the church time. Because after chapter 3, there's no more talking to the church. But yet time goes on, but the church just isn't here. So the message in chapter 2 and 3 is to the church for end times like now. Are you with me? Amen. So what you compromise to keep, you will lose, being a double-minded man and unstable in all of your ways. And fear is the root of all compromise. And it starts small. It starts small like, I can't do without this. I got to have that. See, those are all rooted in fear. I fear I won't have this. Fear there won't be enough. Fear I'm going to miss out. That's all fear. It starts small. But what happens is you steer your conscience to those things. And then more and more and more comes. And you sear your conscience and sear your conscience. Sometimes we hear things like, well, you know, Paul turns such and such over to the destruction of his flesh, to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit would be saved in the day of judgment. Because if he keeps going down that road, he could come to the place to where he makes a decision to lose his salvation. And you think, well, how could that ever happen? Step by step. Compromise, 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 seer conscience, seer conscience, seer conscience. So after another step, no big deal. And this is why sometimes you think things are just so petty. Why do you pick on petty stuff? Why do you talk about this? Such small things that it doesn't matter. It does matter because they all lead to big things. If you don't catch the little foxes, your vineyard will be destroyed. Verse 14. 
So he said, I know where you dwell. You dwell where Satan dwells, at Satan's throne. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam. I have a few things against you. The word against is an intensive word, and it means to have a grudge, to feel very strongly. And he's actually saying, I've got a few things against you. In other words, I'm so surprised at what you're doing. I know where you dwell. I've been there. You're right there where Satan's throne is. You dwell right where Satan dwells. But I'm surprised at how you're acting. And I've got this against you, that you're doing these things. Considering the circumstances, the surroundings, the geographical location where certain Satan dwells, Jesus is not accepting compromise. Even on those surrounding circumstances, he does not accept compromise. He considers his word and his spirit to be the objects of circumstances that one should be surrounded with. Should be the ones that makes the difference so if you were born for just such a time as this and you got all kinds of crazy nuts going on out there and they're trying to impose all of these uh rules and regulations and you're shaking in your boots you're surrounded with the wrong things you're not surrounded in the word and the holy spirit you're surrounded with that I mean, we've said it for how many years? Years, years. I don't know how many years I've said it. It don't matter who's in the White House or who's in the outhouse. It does not matter for the church. Means nothing. Well, what if they, who cares what they? Yeah, but what if they take, who cares what they take? You came into the world with nothing. You're going to leave with nothing. Yeah, but they might, and what about me? And there's fear. And because of your fear, you're willing to compromise. Well, it's not really that bad. I mean, it's just a cup of coffee. Come on, let's go get it. We're not going to pay attention to the guards over there. We're just going to have some coffee. You know, I know that, oh, that movie. I mean, what a great movie. I, I mean, the language. Was, I mean, every other word out of their mouth. But if you could just overlook that, the movie was great. Really. Really. Compromise. And you watch enough of those movies, and guess what's going to come out of your mouth? Not bless you, Jesus. Are you with me? He's got this against them. If Jesus didn't consider these circumstances to be an excuse to compromise and give place to the flesh, then he certain don't, certainly does not consider us being tired and compromising. I didn't mean to act like that, but, you know, I'm just so tired. Well, it's not a reason to compromise. Well, then what should you do? Go to sleep. I used to tell my kids that all the time. You're on the verge of getting in trouble. You're tired. Do something. They'd go to sleep. <laughs> they would. They would go to sleep because they know. They're gonna, they go down this road. They're going to be in trouble. It's not an excuse. Well, what do you ever do with the kids? Oh, the kids are acting up. Well, that's because there's company over the house and things are kind of, you know, that shouldn't be an excuse. You don't make excuses for wrong behavior. doesn't matter what's going on. So therefore what? You've taught them not to operate correctly when they're tired. You've taught them not to operate correctly when there's a bunch of people around. You've taught them that there are exceptions to operating rightly. 
And that's how we've grown up. Well, I'm tired. I don't have to do that. You know, it's just kind of a good time, so let's just let it hang loose. Compromise. Jesus didn't consider their situations a reason to compromise. He doesn't consider the fact that you're emotionally upset a reason to compromise. You say, well, I'm not going to deny Jesus because I'm emotionally upset. Compromise, 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 compromise. Brings you right down that road. He doesn't consider peer pressure, family pressure, friend pressure, or any other pressure, workplace pressure. He don't consider any of that a reason to compromise. I've known Christians that says, well, you know, it's, uh, I, I get their respect first. You don't get their respect by living like them. You know, when I went into the military, <laughs> you get off of that bus, that drill instructor wasn't like, hey, guys, come on, let's go hang out for a while. I'm going to be just like you. No. You better get your act together because Smokey the Bear is breathing down your neck. It's 11 <laughs> o'clock at night, and you, all you can feel is breath. You can't see his face. And you'd better get it together. And if you compromised, you wound up in the what they called the slit sleeve squadron. He doesn't consider you're not feeling like it today. I just don't feel like it today. You don't consider that a reason to compromise. He doesn't consider the pressures of life a reason to compromise. He doesn't consider the fact that you have lack in your life. He doesn't consider the fact that sickness has attacked your body. Well, I'm just not feeling well today. He doesn't consider that a reason to compromise. He doesn't consider anything. If that was not a reason to compromise, there is nothing in your life that you face or will face that is ever going to be a reason on why you should compromise. You should settle that today. Any excuse we take to compromise and give place to the undisciplined flesh will open us up to the correction of the Lord. You can count on that. And we say, Lord, but look at my circumstance. God, don't you know what I'm dealing with? Oh, do you see what I'm going through? And what does he say? I know. I know where you dwell. I've been there. I'm walking with you. I see it. I'm in you. I know exactly what's going on. You're not giving me a newsflash here. But I'm telling you that you need to get it together and there is no reason to compromise. My spirit's in you, my word's in you, my anointing's in you, and everything you need to overcome this piece of trash that's coming against you, you've got it in you. And there's no reason to compromise with that thing. Amen. Hallelujah. I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So very simply, Balaam was hired by King Balak to speak a curse over Israel, but he couldn't. Um, and every time he'd go to curse Israel, a blessing would come out and he could not curse Israel. 
He was not a godly prophet. He was an evil prophet. He was not one of God's prophets. But he, he put himself off as being one, but the Lord wouldn't let him speak like that. So he taught King Balak to bring out the, uh, uh, the idol worship and all the women of the pagan women and to entice the men into sin. And he said, if you do this and entice them and get them into sin, they will remove themselves from the blessing and they will walk into the curse. So that's what Balaam taught Balak. So why did Balaam teach Balak to do that? Because he wanted the money. Because Balak was willing to pay him to curse Israel. And here's what you have come to find, is that people of God have always withstood the external attacks of the enemy. But they've always stepped into sin and therefore brought the curse upon their own self. And this is what's being taught in the church. It's okay to be involved in idol worship. It's okay to act immor immorally. What's it going to hurt? I mean, after all, you still believe in God. It's all right. He understands the circumstances. Things are tough out there. Just go ahead. There's a lot of pressures out there. Just go ahead and give yourself to it. Not, not a big deal. And churches are teaching people to fit into the world and be accepted so that they won't be ridiculed. They won't be persecuted. Or in their case, you won't be put to death. And the flesh wants that. I mean, we could do a whole lesson on how to sin. And after a few sessions, you'll be like, yep, that's what we want. Why? Because every single one of us is only a breath away from being stupid. So it is. It just takes one breath to be stupid. Amen. So that's what's being taught. You're saved. You're still saved. You can go act like that. You can live like that. Go ahead. Drink the coffee. Enjoy the theater. But will there be protection? See, God, Jesus don't consider this acceptable. Circumstances are not an excuse for sin. It's the door to the curse, just like Balaam knew that it was. The church in Pergamum had stood against strong persecution. But what Satan could not accomplish from without, he was trying to do from within. From within. Thank you, Jesus. And he was doing it through Balaam-like deceit teaching them it's okay you can go to the theater you can go you know you're not feeling good you can go to a sclethios you know you can you can go to uh, artina you you need protection you know it, it's okay you're saved you're a christian J you know we don't really accept that but just go ahead and, and you'll be okay and christ rebuked the church leaders for tolerating those who like Balaam were undermining people's faith. Apparently, some in the church were corrupting others in their attempt to justify idol worship, perhaps by joining in with civic cer ceremonies where idols were worshipped. Eating food offered to idols refers to these people taking part in pagan festivities. Sexual sin may also be understood as being part of pagan, certain pagan festivities as with the men of Israel. And the blessing the blessing of God can never be reversed, but you can walk out of it. You can walk out of it. Amen.
And then in verse 15, he talks about the Nicolaitans. He says, you hold, they have those that are holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, the word Nicolaitans means a conqueror or corrupter of the people. Now, church history tells us that the licentious Nicolaitans, this is what they taught, that sensuality must be overcome. But you overcome it by indulging it. Mm -hmm. You overcome it by indulging it. They bade defiance to all moral laws and gave themselves up to the most shameless licentiousness. It is no great thing, they said, to restrain lust. But it is surely a great thing not to be conquered by it when you indulge in it. How are you not conquered when you're indulging in it? But you see, that's that mindset. And you're hearing things today and you're like, well, how could that be? Because that's the mindset. And that's the same thing here. It was their mindset. You know, you, you can't justify indulging in it. You can't justify this and say, by doing this, everything will be okay. It's not. That is the problem. They taught the dangerous principle that the flesh must be abused and one that the flesh must be abused and one must make the whole round of sensuality to become a perfect master of it. You know what that kind of life does? It leads to total insensitivity. That's what that whole lifestyle will lead to, total insensitivity. And you got to be careful because they're teaching kids that. Leading lives of unrestrained indulgence. That kind of stuff will destroy you, destroy you inwardly. That's why when, you, when you've got stuff that you believe, you got to ask yourself, who told you that? Who told you that? Why did you come to believe this? They promoted compromise. The Nicolaitans promoted compromise. They said that it will not touch your spirit. It only touches your flesh. So you can blend with the world, but it won't touch your spirit. It only touches your flesh. You can go to the union meetings where they have idol worship. You can eat the meat that's offered to idols. You can go to the theater where they're offering sacrifices. And they wanted to be a part of all of the forbidden goddess, godless temples. So they've come up with all these justifications just to make it okay. Why? Because they were not able to resist the temptation of their past sins. Because it was still calling them. And they wanted to go back to it. And they used a doctrine to justify their positions. In the King James Version, he said, I hate the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which means I abhor it, I detest it. Why? Because this teaching conquers, corrupts, and destroys his people, his church. The enemy attacks with pressures to destroy, but sin calls with pleasure to destroy. Let me say that again. The enemy attacks with pressure to destroy you, but sin calls with pleasure that will destroy you. The devil don't care which one you fall to, the pressure or the pleasure. He don't care as long as you fall. Whatever works, and he'll throw it at you over and over and over again, trying to penetrate into your life, into your thinking, so that you'll walk into those things. And how do you stand against 
those onslaughts. Hebrews 12 tells us, don't be entangled and encumbered by your favorite sin. The sin that so easily besets you. Your favorite sin. We all have one. You know, I don't get threatened with Brussels sprouts. Never have. It has never spoken ugly to me. Never said, ooh, you know you want to eat me. Never did. It's never spoken to me. Mm -mm. Doesn't matter if you put bacon on it or anything else. It, it's never talked to me. We've all been affected differently by sin. And we all deal with different things because of sin. We all have different strengths, different weaknesses because of sin. And we need to develop in different areas because of sin. So what are we doing to develop our stand? Are we doing anything? Or are we just kind of moving along in life, same old, same old day after day, and it's just the same old thing? Is our favorite sin still there? If it is, then you're still opening the door to the curse. And God gives you grace time. He says, what does he say in verse 16? Repent, or else I will come. So he's not saying, sorry, boys, you have no time to repent. I'm coming. No, he's giving them a chance. See, this is grace. Grace time to make a decision. Now, one of the problems is, is that we think grace will last forever. Oh, I'm in the dispensation of grace, so it's going to last forever. No, grace is not your excuse to sin. Grace is the empowerment to overcome sin because it teaches you to deny ungodliness. So he gives us time to repent. Repent means change your mind, change your way of thinking, change your action, giving them a chance to miss judgment because what comes after correction? Direction. He's giving them direction now. Or, repent or else I'm going to come. And I'll fight against you with the what? Two-edged sword that's in my mouth. You think the governor's got a big sword? Hmm. In our modern culture, tolerance is praised. Tolerating heretical teaching, sinful behavior in the church. It's not a virtue, it's sin. And so serious a matter that they should fail to repent or fail to discipline themselves Christ warns them, I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Son, that's a war you are not going to win. And your hiney ain't tiny enough to get out of it. You're in trouble. He says, I will come unto thee quickly, and I will fight against them. So I'm going to come to you, but I'll fight against them. Because they're idioms that both refer to the entire church. I'm coming to you as an individual, but I'm coming to y'all. The church faced the battle sword of Christ's judgments and the her hereditics for practicing their heresy and iniquity and those of the church who tolerated it. So it wasn't just those in the sin. It was those in the church that was tolerating it and saying, it's okay, we love you just the way you are. No. And there's no demand for change. That's why the Lord pointed out Antipas and said, my faithful witness, his lifestyle and his death and martyrdom was a 
an edict, an edict against the church on their compromise. Why is it that it's not just those that sin, but also those that tolerate it? Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You may not be in it, but leaven's touching you. Amen. Jesus had the two-edged sword, not just the sword, the right of the sword, but he had the sword. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. To him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. To him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It applies to all churches and all individuals within the church. And God is giving direction. He's giving correction. He's giving direction. And then he says, him who overcomes. So now he's talking about you can be protected by being an overcomer. But if you're not going to be an overcomer, you will not be protected. To him who overcomes, the victor, and that's God's desire for every one of us, to overcome the occult, to overcome the Caesar worship, to overcome the Nicolaitans, to overcome the Balaam deceptions, to overcome the things of the world, to overcome the wrong doctrines that's being taught in the churches and accepting the world spirit into the church. Jesus is looking for believers who overcome the world through faith. This is the purpose of the correction. This is the purpose of the direction that you can become an overcomer instead of being one that is overcome, whether it be by the totality of the world system or by your favorite sin. He don't want you to be overcome. He wants you to be overcome, to be the overcomer. Why is faith not working? Are we using it to overcome the world? Or are we just trying to use it to get a little money? Feel a little better. Go on a better vacation. What are we trying to do here? What's the purpose? Are we overcoming the world? The world. What is the world? Your favorite sin. That's the world. Giving in to the flesh. That's the world. Unwilling to renew our mind is the world. If I don't renew my mind to the things of God, I think like the world. Carnal. Overcome the world by faith. Faith overcomes the world. And he says here, I will give him some of the hidden manna. Jesus refers to the leaven of bread as the teachings of the Pharisees. Remember that? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. They're teaching. But Jesus calls himself the bread of life. Jesus, the bread of life, provides spiritual nourishment that satisfies our deepest hunger. Those who were refusing to revel in the pagan feasts and festivals of Pergamum were promised the manna that would satisfy hunger and bring blessing into their life. The manna was hidden in the ark of the covenant by Moses, where it was protected. The pot of manna was designed to remind the Israelites of God's grace and faithfulness in the wilderness. Hidden manna was a revelation of the word of God, of his grace and his faithfulness, that which would sustain them through all things, satisfy and fulfill their deepest hunger. Are we looking for revelation? Cut out the compromise and be an overcomer. Yes, sir. 
place of protection. It's called the secret place where you get revelation from God. Well, not only did he say you'll get hidden manna, but he said, I'll give him a white stone. The white stone was a symbol of favor, prosperity, and success. In the pocket of every person in the city of Pergamum, they carried a white stone or a charm or a crystal with the name of a god or a spirit on it. They would grab hold of that stone and meditate on the name that was written on that stone and would give them special powers, just like some people use crystals today. And they would summon all of its demonic energy that was connected to that white stone. But Jesus said, I'll give you a stone with my name on it and all that comes with my name. And no one knows that name except the one that receives the stone, who is who? The overcomer. Only the overcomer has the manna and the stone. And only the overcomer knows it. For the overcomer, remember, it's the hidden manna and a white stone that nobody knows what's on it but you. So what is that? It's your ace in the hole. Because when the enemy comes against you, you have manna to use against him. When the enemy wants to take from you, you have manna to fill you up and satisfy you. When the enemy wants to attack you, you have a stone to pull out and say, in the name of Jesus. And only the overcomer has that. Everybody in the church knows the name of Jesus, but not everybody can use it. Because it will not function for everybody unless you're the overcomer. Are you with me? This is why you hear people say things, well, I use the name of Jesus, nothing works. You're not an overcomer. Are you with me? I will give him a hidden manna, and I will give him, thank you, Jesus, a hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name, a new name, not that old spirit name. Whatever you came out of. Remember what you came out? Remember how you lived? Remember that, remember that name that said drugs? That name that said alcohol? That name that said immorality? That name that said licentiousness? That name that said outburst of anger? No, you don't have that name anymore. I'll give you a stone now with a new name. A new name. It's a fresh revelation of God's name. But not only, I believe, not only is it a fresh revelation of God's name, but it's the name that God gives you by which everyone under heaven is named in the earth. When I get to heaven, I'm not going to be Bob. I will be what the Lord calls me, whatever my name is. Are you with me? Thank you, Jesus. Fresh revelation, and only the overcomer knows it. The one that will stand, the one that will refuse to compromise. He don't need it, that white stone to get into the theater of Dionysus, or the temple of Demeter, or the temple of Zeus. No, he has a white stone now that gets him into the Holy of Holies. The greatest temple of all. That you can receive glory and knowledge 
that is incomprehensible to others. It's called the unlimited riches of his glory and his grace that is set for the overcomer and that nobody else can get it. Oh, does, does that get on you? Does that get on you? I mean, my goodness. Oh, what a... See, at that point, you stepped into a place of perfection. You went from correction to direction to protection and wound up at perfection. See, there are realms that are yet to be revealed. Every place you've gotten to in life in Christ is because of what you've done up to this point. But there are realms to step into in Christ that are reserved only for these last days. And you were born for just such a time as this. Will you be one of the overcomers that says, yes, I will step in to those realms. I will stand against the compromise. I will not yield. And I will continue on and press in to what God has in these days that no generation has ever seen before. Which means the days that are ahead are even greater than the days of the early church from the days of Pentecost. And I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of that. I want to be involved in that. And whatever it takes to put off so that I can put on, I think we want to do that. Amen. Amen. Just lift your hands to the Lord. Oh, Father, whether you're in the room on live stream or on podcast, lift your hands to the Lord right now. Because I know that this word has touched you. I know this word has come with the anointing of God at the very ending to cap all that was said today and make it a reality on the inside of us. Oh, Father. Oh, Lord. We're just asking you right now that by the power of your Holy Spirit that these things become a reality in us. We have received these things today. And, Father, we've received it with great joy. But we want a firm root on the inside of us in these things. Not things come around, Holy Spirit, when something shows up that wants to pull away the desire of other things, that wants to pull us away because of the chaos of the world, that wants to pull us away because of an affliction or a persecution. Holy Spirit, rise up on the inside of me and remind me that these things of no compromise ought to be sealed on the inside of me and become sturdy, strong, and a firm foundation of my life that I will not yield myself. I will not compromise with these things, but I will press in and I will go on to be the overcomer that you've made me to be, that you've ordained me to be, that you have set me in this day to be an overcomer. Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you, Holy Spirit, for the empowerment. I thank you for the anointing. I thank you for the grace. And Father, I thank you that the more that I step in, the more you unveil within me the unlimited riches of your glory and your grace. Oh, 
Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Do you believe that? You receive that? Hallelujah. We receive that, Lord, in the name of Jesus. I receive that, Lord Jesus. I bless you, Lord. I bless you, Lord. I bless you, Lord. Hallelujah. 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 Thank you, Lord Jesus. I want to tell you about a great book that we have in the bookstore, and I think besides this, there's only one more, unless they're in the drawer someplace. But it's how to keep your head on straight in a world gone crazy. And if you think there's crazy days out there now, they're getting crazier. The people going off the edge, they're going to continue going off the edge. It's a world that's gone crazy. But you can keep your head on straight. Now, let me just give you some of the title names in the book. And there's a lot of subtitles under it. But these are the title names. A World Gone Crazy, Swimming Upstream in a Downstream World, An End Time Invasion of Seducing Spirits and Doctrines of Demons, Earnestly Contending for the Faith, Early and End Time Error and the Church's Ever-Present Role, a fresh stream versus a mighty river. Could you pass a doctrine test? No higher revelation. A healthy reminder to believers and spiritual leaders. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. And how should we respond? It's a great book. It says, we're living in a day when countless multitudes have lost their way both morally and spiritually, like a ship without an anchor. This last day's generation is being tossed to and fro by a flood of deception and wrong influences that is tragically causing people to lose their moorings. What should we do to make sure we don't get sucked into the chaotic swirl of moral and spiritual confusion sweeping the world today? It's a vital question that must be answered. It's a good book. If you don't get it, I suggest you have it. If you do have it, I suggest you get it off the coffee table and read it. Amen. Thank you, Father. We bless you, Lord. We honor you. We glorify you. Lord of all, you are the mighty God. You are the glorious King, the majestic Lord. There is none like you. There's none higher than you. There's none that is as good as you. Oh, Father, you are our everything, our all in all. Thank you, Father, for all that you are to us, for all that you've done for us, and all that you have planned. For we know that it is good, perfect, and acceptable. As we come before you this evening with our giving, Father, we sow our seed with joy. We sow our seed, Father, to honor you, to bless you. And thank you, Father. You allow us to hear your word by your Holy Spirit. That you have granted to us the ability to understand what your word declares. So that we can take these things to heart, put them into practice, and put them into our life. So, Father, we sow our seed with a heart of tremendous gratitude. We thank you and honor you, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen, amen. Glory to God, glory to God, glory to God. If you should need an envelope for a credit card or cash giving, there should be one on the seat back in front of you. If not, uh, the usher will serve you. If you joined us on live stream, thanks so much for being with us tonight. I know that tonight may have seemed to be a little heavy, but I believe that we went from heavy to holy, and it was a wonderful ending to where the Lord wanted us to go. And it ended up with the anointing and the power to be the overcomer that God has designed for us to be. If you'd like to sow seed into the ministry, you go to our website, newlifefamilyworship.net, and click on the giving link. We thank in advance for the seed that you sow. If there's anything we can pray with you about, please let us know. If you want us to stand with you because you need strength in a certain area, let us know. We'd be glad to stand with you, believe God with you, pray with you, call us. We'll pray with you over the phone, and we will declare the goodness of God and the power of God into your life for whatever you may need. Amen. Amen.